Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. I could give you some jazzy, amazing definition of what a restaurateur does, but what a leader does, and I guess a restaurateur by definition, is a leader in the restaurant space who creates opportunity and who takes away the roadblocks that prevent their teams from doing great. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. What kind of leader do you want to be? Most of us don't even have time to think in those terms, but today's guest believes that it's an essential place to start if we're going to be successful in this industry. Meet David Dressler, co-founder of Tinder Grains. David was the guy that created the culture needed to scale his restaurant from one to 30 locations in less than 10 years. Today, he shares the tactics, tools, and strategies he used to create a bulletproof culture. I would get up before dawn, get to the restaurant, do setup, get a few administrative things done, and then I'd be cashiering, managing the team, delivering office catering orders, picking up ice at Smart and Final because we had this little dinky ice machine. We had these precious linen aprons that had these beautiful wooden buttons and we'd be picking those up at the dry cleaner all the time. <laughs> we'd have enough to supply for everybody. So we're constantly going back to the dry cleaner to get more. And then we'd work service. And as soon as service was over, as soon as like two o'clock happened and the line was at a manageable level, I jump off to do orders. I jump off to do payroll, you know, my, my QuickBooks stuff. And then it'd be time for evening service and then evening service through evening service, then the orders for everything else, produce for the next day. And then uh, clean the kitchen, scrub it down. I'd be just covered in wastewater up to my neck and then go home stinky at one, two in the morning. It sounds as glamorous as I am sure it was. What I'm most interested in is the transition, right? So how many employees did you guys have in that first location? I think we started with 10. <laughs> and we probably needed about 30. So that was another thing we did. Like, you know, as soon as lunch was over, we'd get on the phone to try to find people that could come and work with us. But we were grossly understaffed. Well, and what did training look like? Because, I mean, I've been there when you open, you realize you're severely understaffed or that the staff you have isn't capable of doing the job that is required. And so, I mean, at least for me personally, I was literally just hiring people off the street. And I was like, you'll figure it out as you go. It's fine. Here's your uniform. Go ahead and clock in. Yeah, exactly right. If you could lift 50 pounds, you're hired. It's not, <laughs> not a great hiring criteria, but in the beginning, so there was that. And there was also, we were hiring the people that we could afford. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we got a lot of kids from Venice High, which wasn't too far away from our first restaurant, who had zero experience, but just a tremendous amount of great attitude. And we put them to work and the training was kind of as you described, and we quickly realized that we needed some reinforcements. So we went back to our hotel connections to get some good, strong talent that could 
do the job of two or three people and bring them on to reinforce the youngins and serve as, as more of an example than just the three of us were. I can think about my own career and I can think about like waiting in line at Smart and Final. For me, I owned a bar in Hollywood. We used to get our snow cone syrup from Smart and Final to fill the daiquiri machines. And so I've got this like heavy cart and I'm standing there in line. But I got to tell you, from the day we opened, it probably took about six or seven months of me like standing in that line, going there almost every day to say, is this the highest and best use of my time? Because it's super rewarding to wake up early, to go to bed late, to feel like you're killing dragons every day and overcoming the impossible. At what point did you ask yourself, am I serving my highest and best use within this company? So I'll tell you, standing in line at Smart and Final to buy ice or going on the dry cleaning run, not the best use of my time. (laughs) But I thought about this a lot. And especially in writing the book, Eric and I talked a lot about this, that the early days of the brand, cementing the guest's experience and maybe even more importantly, the team member experience of being in the trenches with them, of showing them our vision in action, really fostering the culture of being both boss and dad and coach at the same time. All of that would not have been happening if I was in the office uniquely just setting the foundation for growth. It needed us to be in there doing that. And so thoughtfully, yeah, I think it was the best use of our time because it created the container that every future team member came into. And how did you evolve out of that? What did that path look like? What were like the significant milestones along the way? Well, Josh, you know, we named our company TYP Restaurant Group, which stood for 10-year plan. Our first safe combination was 10 10 years, three guys, 30 restaurants. So we knew from the very beginning that we were going to be opening more of these. And so the way that we separated was by necessity. We had to get out of the restaurant in order to go find another restaurant. And we had two criteria. It's got to meet the real estate criteria that every good restaurateur should know what he wants or what she wants out of her neighborhood. That's one. But it also had to have talent ready to deploy. And so we had these amazing chefs that were waiting to work with us. And the first pick was uh, Pete Balistrieri out of San Diego. So we were super intuitive and thoughtful about opening our second restaurant two and a half hours away from our first. <laughs> really, really bad idea, except that Pete was down there. So out of necessity, we had to go meet with landlords. We had to go tour spots. We had to go do that. And it was two and a half hours driving down, five, six hours on the ground, walking the streets, and then two and a half hours back. By the time we'd go to the restaurant, do a quick setup, make sure everything was okay that the meat arrived, and then get in the car to drive down to San Diego after rush hour. We'd get down there, we'd do our thing, we'd come back, and it would be halfway through dinner. Somebody had to run the show, and we had to trust some young talent to get it done. And sometimes we'd come home to an absolute shit show, and sometimes we'd come home and the lights would be dimmed, and the music would be at the right volume, and everything would be humming, candles on the tables, people eating, just enjoying themselves perfect buy. How did you set them up for success or did you not? And they just figured it out. I think we did a pretty good job of showing them first. One person that comes to mind, Lacey Moody, who we tell her story in the book, but she didn't get it from the ether. She got it from watching us do it. And she was a copycat and a thoughtful copycat. And whether that was 
what the dining room needed to look like after dark or doing the braised beef on Sunday nights. She just knew what pot roast was supposed to look like, smell like, taste like, and she did it. And we trusted. We wrote things down. We left lists. And those lists became the checklists that became the management training. So out of necessity, we gave our team members the general tools to be able to do it successfully. And then we gave them feedback along the way. And so to get granular for a moment, I mean, this was at least my big concern as as I evolved as a restaurateur, which is if I'm not managing the restaurant, then what the fuck am I doing? How do I spend my time in a way that positively impacts the restaurant? Because I think that most restaurateurs are actually restaurant managers with equity, right? That is my thesis and the goal, ultimately a full comp and everything that I work on is to brainwash people into believing that that is not the end game, right? The end game is to become a restaurateur. And in your mind, when you define what a restaurateur is working at the highest levels, what does that look like day to day? What did it look like for you? So again, we started out with a vision for the company that was not to open one restaurant. So put that aside. And then we go deeper into the idea of, well, what does that mean? That means that we're going to open many of them. Great business to invest in, great business to operate. But deeper than that, we're going to offer a chance for more and more people to eat our food, which we think is not only good for your belly, but good for your soul. We're going to create value. We're going to activate corners and neighborhoods. And we're going to create for me, anyway, most importantly, opportunity for people to grow and advance. A friend of mine, Mark Brems, introduced me to the notion of leaking power, which was this idea of when I'm doing things that anybody else in the organization can do, I'm leaking power. I'm leaking power because I'm not doing the things that only I can do. There's only a few things that I can do that nobody else can do, and I need to be doing them for the good of the enterprise to create that opportunity for people to grow. So that's the first way that we leak power. And the second way that we leak power is that we prevent somebody else from being powerful. If I didn't trust Lacey, a young single mom whose only experience working in the restaurant business up to Tender Greens was working at Quiznos as a sandwich maker, if I didn't trust her, she never would have been able to feel powerful running a shift. And now she's a general manager of one of our restaurants, and she's an amazing woman who has accomplished a ton. So I don't want to leak that power either. So I could give you some jazzy amazing definition of what a restaurateur does, but what a leader does, and I guess a restaurateur by definition, is a leader in the restaurant space who creates opportunity and who takes away the roadblocks that prevent their teams from doing great. But what did you do every day? Like, what did your days look like? We divvied things up by who's the the three of us guys, and I'm using guys because the three of us happen to be guys. The three of us divvied up our tasks based on who could probably do it the best. Uh huh. Right. Okay. So for me, it was I had experience managing budgets and accounting and banking, and I also had experience with HR, and I had some experience with fundraising, and so those kind of became my defaults. So training plans and everything HR related, and then everything sort of business related became me. Eric took on everything culinary and recipe and supply chain and marketing, though admittedly, we, we kind of had a limited view on marketing, but PR, generating stories about the brand, that was him. And then Matt was really the chief tinkering officer who was trying to figure out the best way to get the line to move faster through right the use of equipment or procedure or systems, right? So all of that. 
So we all had a role, right? And so we went and did that in service of getting to number two, to number three, to number four, to number 10. And most common questions that we got from investors, and we were really thoughtful about responding, was, well, it's easy to open one restaurant, but it's harder when it's two because you have to divide your time in half. Or when you get to five restaurants, how are you going to do that? How are you going to ensure that the quality is still quality? So our job became to answer that question. How are we going to do that? Yeah. And one of the biggest answers that we answered, I think, truthfully was, we're going to hire great people who get what we're trying to do so that it's not as monumental a lift as you might think, because they think like we do about quality food, about great, friendly, authentic, efficient service. They get what we're trying to do. And so they're going to do it too. That doesn't mean that they do it perfectly. And certainly, you know, I come in and walk through one of our restaurants and have 25 things to point out in the first five minutes of being there, but that's how they learned. So you speak about evangelizing. Absolutely. One is rah-rah for the brand and thank yous and going around and meeting people and tasting the food and walking into the bathrooms and looking at everything. And the other is the forward look of well, nobody at the restaurant level is going to be signing the lease. Nobody's going to be looking at space. Nobody knows my criteria. Nobody knows how to build banking relationships. Nobody knows how to talk to investors. Those are the things that I have to do and I have to go do them because nobody else can. And how did you find out what you were best in the world at? Because there's this intersection, right, of what you're good at and what you enjoy doing, which are not mutually exclusive. And so over the years, how did you carve out a role for yourself that was both what you were best in the world at and what you got the most joy from doing? Not to say that there certainly weren't things I'm sure that you did on an ongoing basis that you didn't love, but. I'm a Capricorn. I'm a responsibility addict. Whatever needed to get done, if I identify that that was the thing that I could probably do the best, I went and did it. And sometimes I was grumpy about it because I wanted somebody else to do it. But we're three partners and we're doing the very, very best that we can to ensure the ongoing prosperity of the company. You do what you have to do. And I didn't ask myself too many questions. Like, am I really loving this? Is this my passion? No. Later on, as we started to professionalize the company, as we started to like pass off certain things to other people who we had either brought up in the company or brought on board to do it better than we could possibly do it, then I got to be a little bit more choosy because I knew that if I was going to hire somebody and pay somebody to do a function, well, it should be something that they could do better than me. And I think by default, they'd probably have more passion for it anyway. And that's how we came to really redefine our roles. And for me to get less administrative and more culturally focused. I know that fear. The fear of losing everything, or almost as bad. The fear that you'll have to grind on for years at the restaurant without things ever getting better. Hope is nice, but you need help. So I'm going to leverage my 20 years in this industry and the 200 interviews I've done to give you the help that you need. I'm hosting a free webinar this month called The Scaling Session. Over 90 minutes together, I'm going to lay out exactly what you need to do to scale profitability, scale brand awareness, and scale customer frequency. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to sign up today. To make sure that everybody gets what they need from the event, seating is limited. I'm only allowing 25 guests so that you all get the individualized attention that you deserve. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to secure your spot today. Was there a template to finding great people? 
were you able to make it formulaic over time? Yeah. This wasn't something that came initially. This was a learning for us. What we recognized is if that we sat down and looked at the best people in our company, the most successful, and thought about what they all had in common, that we could come up with a list of qualities that we called competencies that would allow us to say, okay, if we only hired people with these competencies, we would probably be way more successful than if we just hired based on attitude alone or skill alone. I want to talk about fundraising as well, because it certainly falls within your core competency. And people reach out all the time and they say, hey, how can I raise money for my new concept or my second location? And you did a ton of fundraising. And I guess to start high level, can you share like lessons that you learned about yourself and about the company through the fundraising process? Uh, Sure. So I'm the kind of person that doesn't like selling anything to anybody. So when it came time to raise money, that was very uncomfortable for me. But what I realized was that I'm pretty chatty. I can actually bring it when I need to. And every time that I got out in front of somebody to talk about Tender Greens, I lit up. And so that was exciting for me to see that of myself. And I don't think we know that unless we sort of jump in and try. I also recognize that I was a straight shooter. Like if somebody asked me a question, some a savvy investor asked me a question I didn't know the answer to, I would say, you know, I don't know. Let me think about that for a minute. Or let me get back to you about that because we actually don't have a plan for that. And what that allowed was for there to be a level of trust established between us and the potential investor where they're not bullshitting us. They're willing to be thoughtful and say they don't know and figure it out. And what that allowed us to do for the company was to go back and say, oh man, we didn't think about that. Let's figure that out. And that would allow us to deepen our deck, actually solve for that, and then go out the next time and pitch it better. And then what about Tinder Grains? What makes for a great investment for people that are out there looking to put money into restaurant concepts? What do you think sells it? I think anybody in our business needs to put themselves in the shoes of the investor. If you're writing a business plan, you need to think about what their concerns would be and address them because they make you a better business operator. Chefs who get into the business oftentimes aren't thinking about the business end of things. They're thinking about the food. They're thinking about the hospitality. They're thinking about what it looks like and feels like and smells like and what it sounds like and the music that's playing at night. And those are all super important considerations. But if you're taking money from somebody, what they're thinking about is, yes, is this going to be a cool place for me to bring my friends? Great. But also, am I going to ever see my money again? And the ability for them to see their money again is certainly uh, people, product, place, but also profit. And also your ability to develop systems that allow you to grow successfully and maintain prosperity, those sorts of things. So. I think if the plan is to open a restaurant, think about the systems that allow you to be successful in that. And if your plan is to open many restaurants, think through all of the systems that need to talk to each other, that need to work together, that allow you as the operator to remove yourself a little bit to be able to focus on the big picture of the business. And if you can't do that, then those are the questions that are going to come. And remember that investors, they're betting on the rider as much as they're betting on the horse. And so they want to know that the rider is capable of winning this race. 
There's good money and there's bad money out there when it comes to investors. And you guys took money from everybody, right? Like you took money from friends and family, institutional money, everywhere. And not in a bad way, but just like what it does is it gives you perspective, right? This is great money to take. This is complicated money to take. What is an ideal investor in your mind after doing it so many different ways? We talk about this quite a bit in the book. The first thing that we looked for was the spirit of partnership. If we were talking about friends and family, that's maybe a different story. Maybe we should talk about that first. Because our first rounds were friends and family, the first round. Second round was a little bit of friends and family that we still had left that could actually write a check still, not many, and customers. Customers were coming into our first restaurant saying, how can I get involved in this? This is great. I really want to be a part of this growth. So for those people, it was about patience. It was about being sure that if you're going to write this check, you're willing to part with this money for a while because we're going to plow every cent back into growth so that we can achieve the return that we're talking about. So patience, aligned values, like you get it. You're not some douchey person that's going to be calling me every five seconds to wonder what I'm doing and am I on it and am I at the restaurant? Just trust that I'm taking care of your money. I'm taking care of your investment. If it's more sophisticated money, either from a fund, a family office, an angel investor, then a spirit of partnership. One is like, we're all in this together, good times and bad. If we're down a quarter, you're not going to be breathing hellfire and demanding your money back. You understand that restaurants, like any other business, go through cycles. Maybe you offer some kind of expertise that we don't have. And Lots of investors will say, well, we're a value-added investor. We'll open you up to this and marketing and finance and other investors and high-level we, we own shopping centers. And at the end of the day, they don't have the bandwidth to help you. And what they're offering is too high-level for where you're at. So I think part of, of finding good investors when you can afford to be choosy is to ask them as many questions as they're asking you. Come up with a great list of what you really are looking for in an investor, what you need, and then don't ask a question like, oh, can you help us with marketing? They'll say, oh, yeah, absolutely, if they want to invest in your company. But ask them specific questions. This is what we're bad at, and we really need help at a grassroots level in this stuff. Do you have bandwidth or expertise or people or anything that can help us with this particular thing? They'll answer and say, what does that look like? And then they would tell you, and then you can know, oh, this is a thing that they're actually willing to put on the table. And so you guys start with a 10-year plan. Less than 10 years later, you guys successfully exit. You left the company pretty shortly thereafter, like a year or two later. And what did you decide to do with your time? So it wasn't a year or two, it was three years, but we took on a minority investor, a great partner. And then a little while into it, I realized that I had been pushing an elephant up a mountain for many years and that somebody could come in who could run the company probably better than I could for this next stage of growth. And so we went to find that person. And when we found her, I was very magnanimous about, hey, welcome in and take my office and I'm going to be a field agent for culture now. And I really wanted to make sure that the heartbeat of the company was going to go on in the face of new leadership, or while we liked Danielle very much and were very excited for her to take the reins, also wanted to make sure that there'd be some continuity and that we weren't just abandoning ship. And so I took on the role of chief people officer with this idea that I just 
keep a watch on the heartbeat and try to influence that and be a sounding board for new leadership. And as Danielle brought in her new team, but there's some level of like seeing somebody else sitting in your office with your team with the door closed and you're not invited to the meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Not awesome. And yeah, I get that. All for the right reasons, but still kind of weird. So at some point I had a heart to heart with her and she said something to me that I'll never forget, which was this. I could never have done what you did, David. I could never have built this company to where it is. And so there's no harm, no foul in you figuring out what you want to do next because you've done it. You've done something really amazing that most people don't get to do. And that gave me a chance to really think about, well, what do I love doing that I'd really like to do? And I think it's funny because we're coming kind of full circle to what we talked about earlier, best and highest use. My best and highest use was no longer that. My best and highest use was paying forward everything that I learned over 25, 30 years in hospitality and building a business to give it to other entrepreneurs, founders, executives. And so you started a new business centered around coaching restaurateurs using the life experience that you've had and the lessons that you've had. Talk to me about what that's been like. Man, when I was in that sort of experiential, what do I want to do next? What would be exciting for me? I recognized that the thing that lit me up the most was having conversations with the young managers, the executives in our company, and helping them see more broadly help them get unstuck where they were where they were sort of reaching their Peter principle on their own leadership skills or technical skills and helping them find their own wisdom, discover their own wisdom around what was what should happen next. And I thought, well, I haven't been to school in a while, so I went and actually got a coaching certification. And so then it started to take shape this idea of, well, I could go out and help founders and even hired executives navigate the headwinds of scale and change. And so I planned with our CEO to step away after a year. I did that coaching training on the side. And then strangely and mercifully, just before week one of the pandemic was the week that I stepped away. And my idea was to build a treehouse for my daughter for her birthday and then get to work on a quiet advisory, which is my company that does advisory coaching practice. And it turned out to be a really beautiful thing because there were a lot of people hurting as the pandemic evolved who needed some guidance and I was able to be helpful to them and also to reach past the restaurant business to help other founders, entrepreneurs figure out their next moves relative to scale and also to coach them holistically because my philosophy is happier at work is happier at home and happier at home is happier at work. And I don't believe that there's a definitive line that can be drawn when you get out of your car and you park it and you walk into work. Similarly, driving home after a busy day, you have a choice to make about how you're going to show up when you walk in the door. And I think it's all related, not to mention how you treat your body and how you treat your soul and everything that you want out of life. So I try to take a holistic view with the people that I coach and advise to be more than just a performance coach on how much shit can we cram into your bag, but more how do we do it right so you can have the life that you want and the business that you want. Now, are there common problems and common solutions? Yeah. Starts with a plan. These days, in particular, I think it starts with a reckoning of how hard it has been. Because I think a lot of us have some level of imposter syndrome or a feeling of, wow, if only I could have done more. 
And I'm not sure how any of us who were paying the least amount of attention could have done more with everything that has hit us in the last little while. And so acknowledging that these are not easy times to be doing anything, and we're all forced to do more with less, that's one thing. And then two, self-assessing, like, okay, so where am I right now? Good, bad, ugly. What's the low-hanging fruit that I can attack now to give myself a greater sense of momentum? But more importantly, what do I actually want to achieve? What's my vision for the next five, 10 years? And that should be tied to the values, what's important to us, what we really want. It should be tied to a strategy for what we want our life to look like out picture. And then looking at our skills, do I have the skills necessary? Do I have the soft skills and the hard skills necessary to actually be able to achieve that vision? So how do I have to optimize myself to be able to achieve what I want to achieve? And then what's my plan for the next 12 months in order to chip away at that? What's my next portion of that 10-year plan look like? And how do I operationalize it? What help do I need? What skills do I need? What deadlines am I holding myself to? How am I going to move this forward so that 12 months from now, I can look back and say, I moved the ball significantly towards my 10-year plan. Well, you obviously have a very specific goal for what you want leaders within this industry and outside of this industry to become. I'm curious to know, do you have a vision for what this industry at large could be? If you could wave a magic wand, what's one thing you would change about the industry? We have gone through an unbelievable amount of turmoil. And I recognize the food industry, particularly restaurants, as the last bastion of social contact, of togetherness, of being away from everything that is mundane, to be served, to eat delicious food that's not the food that you make at home, to listen to music that you don't listen to on your Spotify, to eat off of a plate that's not your scratched up crappy plate, to have an experience to be around people. That is not going away anytime soon. It's going to come roaring back. And so I don't know if I have a feeling of what I don't want it to be because also people's, you know, I could say, well, you know, third-party delivery systems are the bane of our environment. But people like to eat in their underwear watching TV. (laughs) So there's a place for everything. But what I hope is that And what I love is this idea that people are social by nature and they want to be in places to have that experience. And we can keep rising to that and not go down the slippery slope of just getting so stuck in where we just have to scrape for every penny. People will continue to pay for something that is special and worthwhile and that makes them feel good. This is an industry podcast. And in the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? I think I've kind of said some of it, but my word of encouragement would be something like, keep going, be smart about what you're trying to accomplish, stay in your heart with your team. There's never been a more difficult time to hire and keep great people. But if you love the hell out of them, if you really lean into the idea that maybe they're not family, but they're the next best thing, and that you develop your parenting skills around your team, give them a place that feels like that third spot between home and whatever else they're doing in their lives to be there and to feel grounded in a place that matters and that cares about them. And that community 
is the energy that goes out. That's David Dressler. To become a better leader today, visit quietadvisory.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.